0: Eric, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Now, you're a geological engineer, right? What is that?
1: So a geological engineer, I guess, is sort of a a multidisciplinary profession that brings together geology and engineering, just as the name would imply. But I think sort of more nuanced in that is what it brings together is something that's very quantitative, engineering. You know, we need to put numbers together, we need to design things, um, and it brings it together with... Something that can sometimes, well, brings it together with geology, which is often very qualitative, can be very abstract. You're talking about processes that have occurred over hundreds of millions of years uh, on spatial scales that, that you know, uh, vary from the continent to the planet. Uh, and you're trying to bring all that sort of abstract and, and qualitative thinking down to uh, the very simple task on a project of, of how do you put numbers to geology? Um, and so from a, a range of different applications, um, but really anything that involves uh, human activity, engineering activity that interfaces with the earth, whether it's um, energy and, and building uh, a dam, uh, transportation, building a tunnel, uh, buildings, bridges, um, natural hazards. And so it's, it's often we, we, we say that it's not only looking at how uh, and mitigating how engineering impacts the earth of course trying to look at, at at you know how do we minimize our impact on the environment but on, on engineering projects also how does earth processes um, like natural hazards how can they impact our communities uh, and how can we and, and our projects um you know infrastructure projects like highways and pipelines and and railways um how do you protect those um from 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 an understanding of the natural hazards
0: Right, because you need to know what's under the ground if you're going to, going to be p- building on it.
1: Yes, and and, and and often that's hidden from us. And so it's it's sort of where, you know, geological engineering is a branch of engineering that has to manage significant uncertainty. And there's a certain art to how you then project and put numbers to geology, which is largely hidden beneath your feet and having to put like a detective little clues together to try to say what has been the geological history at a given location what is the expected geology um, and related to that what are some of the challenges that we can expect when we actually go underground and begin that construction
0: so you're going to be in demand when they start building that uh, subway extension out to ubc right
1: yeah i've already had some activity myself one so geological engineering is quite broad you know there's um Within our department, we have, uh, I think it's six geological engineering professors. Um, some are more aligned on the hydrogeology environmental side. So looking at water and how water flows through the ground and how engineering activities can impact that, you know, important uh, resource, wh- which is, again, also a, a measure of the health of the environment. Uh, and and then half of us are sort of involved more with what we call geotechnical um, uh, Aspects of geological engineering, um, and that's working with sort of rock or soil as an engineering material. So, sort of rock, soil, water, uh, but we sort of sort of divide the two sometimes. Um, so, yeah, so been very active on on a number of projects. And my specific specialization is generally around underground construction, so building tunnels um, and building um, yeah underground mines.
0: Now, um. In the podcast, we've met people at various stages in their career. Uh, at what stage would you consider yourself to be at?
1: Counting the years to retirement. <laughs> but, but, maybe, but but maybe I'm still I guess about 10 to 15 years away from that. So I'm I guess would be generally seen as, yeah, mid to senior level. Um, I've had a I have had a very quite a few successes in terms of my career in terms of just, um, you know, my time here at UBC building up my research program so I've, I've sort of let's say in that way uh have sort of peaked in terms of aspirations of of, of what I've been building um so yeah I'm I, I, I don't know I'd have to do the demographics in the department but I guess I'm sort of in the the mid to senior um split yeah
0: <laughs> when you were in school uh did you do geological engineering the whole way through or uh so, do you have any
1: so when I went through engineering, which was would have been the uh, late '80s, um, at that time most engineering programs across across Canada, you had two years of common engineering, and then you'd specialize for your final two years. And so I think when I went into engineering, um, you often hear of sort of what we call the big three. You hear of mechanical engineering, civil engineering, electrical engineering. Um, I was probably in my mind aligned with mechanical engineering. I uh, always had an interest in the space program. I thought building rocket ships would be really cool. Um, and then I had to take, it was required to take a class, uh, geology for engineers. I sat in that class and, and I also enjoyed outdoor activities. And I thought, oh, I'd never heard of this. And, you know, the the professor who taught the class, you know, he was showing all these fantastic pictures of, of different projects he worked on around the world, um, And it just something that's resonated with me that here was a branch of engineering where I, it wouldn't just be working in a, in an office and a cubicle. Um, but it would be actually be partly in the outdoors and being able to work, you know, in nature and, and being in the mountains and, and traveling to these different projects around the world. Um, and so that's, that's what attracted me into it. And, uh, once I sat through that class, yeah, I was sold and, and that's when you know when the time came for me to choose the program I was going to go into. It was uh, geological engineering.
0: That's great. Sometimes it it just uh, takes a really dedicated prof like that to change the course of your career.
1: Especially, I, I did my my engineering degree at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm I'm you know, from Saskatchewan, so that's a pretty flat, you know, territory in terms of. Um, geology although I, I would say there are river valleys and there is interesting geology up up you know north of, of the glacial deposits and stuff but yeah so to be a flatlander and to be you know it was sort of being a, 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 you know inspired by by the, the you know the complexity of geology and and just the things that would you know I, to me there's just so many amazing things in geology um that all trace back to you know what can happen in 4.5 billion years <laughs> it's, it's it's quite amazing when you when you look at, at at just how the Earth
0: has evolved and and how it works. I'm a, Man- a Manitoba,n so I uh, totally empathize. <laughs> um, now, most careers tend to be a bit uh, circuitous. Um, it, it, has that been your experience, or has it been more of a linear path to where you are today?
1: No, I, I think it's it's always been being very fortunate to be in a position where. Um, I've had opportunities present themselves to me uh and a lot of times my motivation would be you know this is be a really interesting life experience um and so you know i was you know i probably started off doing my undergrad work and thinking i'll graduate as an engineer and go off working for a consulting company um and certainly you know, I have done that. You know, and I've worked in you know a few different mining operations and and things like that as a junior engineer, and was presented an opportunity to graduate studies, and and the grad project was tied to to a gang, a real problem in a in a in a working mine, and and so to me it was the idea of oh I can work and you know advance my education, and then I had an opportunity to do a PhD, which was tied to Canada's nuclear waste. Um, uh, repository design concept in in Pinawa, Manitoba, the underground research laboratory. Uh, and so I've, that sounded fascinating. And so now then I got into, you know, from from the world of mining into the world of nuclear waste. And and then I had an opportunity to go to Switzerland um, and uh, work there for six years, uh, tied to, you know, their top engineering school, which was the ETH in Zurich. But working on projects, uh, which was the start of, uh, at the time was the start of the Gotthard base tunnel, which is now the longest, deepest rail tunnel in the world. Um, and so to be able to have worked on a project like that, then all of a sudden I was working in tunneling and because Switzerland is a mountainous, you know, territory with, with a, a mountainous country with, with, um, a lot of natural hazards, like landslides and rockslides, I also w- was working on these rockslide projects. So, so. I think I've 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 always been able and very fortunate to be able to go from opportunity to opportunity um and I guess really there probably were other paths I could have taken that I think would have just been equally rewarding but I I certainly was very fortunate in terms of of the opportunities that presented themselves to me right up to coming to UBC I I think I was looking 6 years in Switzerland uh my German let's say was was barely conversational um I learned that that languages isn't one of my strong points <laughs> and uh, i thought well you know i would like to get back to canada be closer to family and friends and um i thought i'd probably end up in the us just because of numbers right if, if you're you're looking where where are the most opportunities in terms of jobs and stuff but I, I just uh you know just all of a sudden popped up on on my 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 you know uh my 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 mail at that time it would have been uh, an opportunity at ubc and and so and then I've been here for, yeah, for, for, uh, I guess, was it almost 18 years now? I think.
0: And all those projects sound super fun. Um, I mean, nuclear waste, that's just exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I think going through engineering and graduating in the early 90s, um, was at a time when, uh, there weren't as many, uh, opportunities and jobs in engineering. So I think the numbers were probably down. So, now it's sort of I'm in a little bit of a demographic um, grouping where there's a lot of senior people who are retiring, and there's a lot of junior people who have since come into the field, but they're sort of missing sort of this this middle grouping um, that I fall into and so I've, I've I've had a lot of opportunities from that i've I've been able to work on um, the nuclear waste program in Sweden uh, I've been able to work on a number of hydroelectric projects down in South America um working quite a bit on, on, with different mining projects in South Africa, in Australia, in uh, Indonesia. So yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate in terms of the opportunities that have presented them to myself and, and I've been able to, yeah, just, everything that I was sort of told him in that, that first, first class I took on geology for engineers, I was able to work the, you know and travel around the world on, on a lot of really exciting, large infrastructure type projects.
0: And seeing them in a way that the general public probably never gets to see.
1: Yeah, and and it's it brings a certain awareness, and it's sort of my current. It, it sort of aligns with where my research is, and, and and a lot of my research is is related to um, how to make mining safer, um, largely around safety issues around mining in terms of how geology creates these different hazards. And how do we see them? But doing so in, a, in an environment where the mining industry is being pushed to into sort of this unprecedented ground. And, and so parallel to that is sort of this, this interest and awareness um, and, and almost as an engineer uh, and an educator, I guess, in the sense here, here at UBC, of, of trying to understand and communicate where we are as a society facing um, really existential you know questions around the environment and the one that if you don't mind me sort of taking some time to really have a discussion with you on uh, comes to um, well it, let's say it starts here at UBC where there was um, a UBC climate emergency task force and this was something where they released a report in 2019 student-led and of course speaking to all these things that are really important there, you know, the, the earth is undergoing, you know, this anthropogenic influenced forcing, uh, of the change of the climate. We see it, how many, how many, you know, how many newspapers and, and news art articles and stories do you, do you not, know, you know, do you have to sort of, you know, that you see that talks about, Oh, record breaking this record, breaking floods, record breaking heat
0: you don't need to read about it anymore we're we're living it
1: I, I, exactly and then we're living it right sometimes it seems global and you, you hear about lake mead and and saying oh boy i you know i wouldn't want to live in in arizona as as, as you know the 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 reservoir behind hoover dam is 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 you know drying up but yeah we, we see it in our our own backyard and we saw it just last year with with you know the storm events in the the Fraser valley and and, and the flooding and, and what happens and so you're seeing extreme flooding you're seeing extreme heat you know Linton burning down Linton burning down a gang um, so it, it's it's clear and it's obvious and so when i see these 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 um you know i don't, from anything from protests to communications and stuff like that all of them are really hitting the right note in terms of the problem and the urgency of the problem but what i'm also seeing i believe is a disconnect with a pragmatic reality and how, and this is where my engineer brain kick, kicks in, how do we solve these problems and what's needed to solve these problems? So one of the, the, the it was buried in the appendix of, of this um, emergency task force, climate emergency task force report, but they had a statement and it was around learning and, 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 and education. And the statement said, how should we approach courses and programs that are counter to climate justice? Um, question mark. And they use as examples, mining and geological engineering. And I saw that and I was, I was taking a little bit of back and I said, uh, you know, we are counter to climate justice. And that's a little bit, maybe, I'm not quite sure because climate justice becomes a, a, a very important discussion, but it extends off of, of, of the whole issue of climate change and, and how do we deal deal with that? And I was taking a little bit of back because really, uh, and, and also speaking for my colleagues in mining, but... Myself as the director of the geological engineering program here, uh, I, I always saw ourselves as being on the front lines of that, bat. that you know, we are the ones that are working with the mining industry in trying, in terms of trying to mitigate and lessen the impact of mining on the environment, but at the same time, recognizing the need and importance of mining to climate change solutions. And specifically, I think where I was coming from, it was was very much a BC story, and that's copper. You know, copper is 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 one of the the the, the I guess if we look at mining in BC, um, the you know the two biggest sort of mining outputs are are metallurgical coal for steel making, uh, and copper. And so you start. Digging down into it, and 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 you start. I start looking at it from the demand side. So you know, we talk about um, you know the green energy transition, the need to to get ourselves off of fossil fuels, um, uh, move to renewables, re- move to electric cars. And it's always a question that I I I sort of feel or ask when when I see people talking about this is, you know, do they understand what that actually means to actually. Make that happen.
0: You can't grow a Tesla.
1: And you know, and and you look at how popular Tesla is, right? And and they're not the only ones. I I, I even remember I had an uncle who worked for a GM down in Detroit, and I remember it must have been twenty, maybe even thirty or thirty-five years ago, just being down there, and, and we were walking through a lot lot, and he was showing us some of the electric cars they're you know developing and stuff like that. I don't know if any of them made them to market, but but you know, this is electric cars aren't a new thought or idea, but here's what is new. Is jurisdictions like California talking about, you know, mandating how many new cars being manufactured have to be electric cars by a certain, you know, year? BC has a similar thing. China's talked about is China talking about going to 100% electric vehicles, and so this is of course an, an, an important thing. So here's the numbers that, that I like to, to, to dig through. An electric car takes five to ten times more copper than a conventional gasoline car. And, and, and it's not, today's cars do take a lot of copper. Electric cars take five to 10 times more than that. Uh, we talk about, a, you know, wind farms. Uh, one wind turbine takes five tons of copper. Um, uh, a solar farm takes 5.5 tons of copper for every megawatt that it produces. Um, and so when we look at renewables, renewables take two to five times more copper than natural gas or coal. And I think everyone then is in agreement that we do need to move away from natural gas and coal. But when we say we're going to replace them with renewables, A, that's not going to be done quickly, but B, it's going to take a whole lot of copper to be able to do that. And copper is just the one I pick because it's, 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 a it's, it's, it's one of the. You'll hear other people talking about other, um, you know, they'll talk about uh, supply security of, of different strategic minerals and stuff like that, that are also, built into these systems, but copper is one of the predominant one. Um, and it's all the wiring, right? Electric cars take, you know, five times more, 10 times more copper, but then you have to add on the electric charging stations because every home would have a charging station that you're adding and every parking spot would have a charging station that you're adding. And so these are all additions above our current use and the current supply of copper
0: we often hear about rare, rare earth metals as the sexy uh, trendy group of minerals but um copper is the is the old one but you know it's at the core of almost everything that we use
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's the workhorse
0: it's yeah reliable yeah.
1: so that's the demand side now on the supply side um the projections are fairly consistent the numbers might vary a little but they're basically saying that we're going to have a supply gap of about 5 million tons um, by twenty twenty five, and ten million tons uh, by twenty thirty.
0: And just because I can't wrap my head around those numbers, uh, how many tons are we using or producing right now?
1: Yeah. I, I, so, so the number that they'll, they'll they'll say is that we need to mine as much copper in the next twenty years that we than we mined in the last ten thousand years.
0: And is there that much copper that we know of?
1: So this is the, this becomes in the next part of that, that. so why is there a supply gap, right? Supply and demand. If the demand is there, why don't we just increase the supply? So you start looking into that and you know, you get different projections. So some projections are saying that we need to invest hundred billion dollars to build mines to close a five megaton supply gap. So when we say we're expecting a five megaton supply gap in, 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 in let's say five years and, and 10 megatons in, in a million tons in 2030, we're talking then about a um, $100 billion investment to build new mines um, to be able to do that. The other one that you can point to is that one projection is that um, if we look at current mining at its its current rate, uh, that by 2035, there'll be 200 copper mines that have basically come to the end of what they can produce. And that's t- so that's 200 mines that will be closed by 235 and currently there are about 250 mines operating.
0: Ah, so that gives a so sense of scale. So that, that
1: is, right. So that does a sense of scale in terms of what's going to be um, needed for that. And we can start saying, okay, well, then do we have to increase? So really what we're facing is this, this problem we have to increase, right. The number of, of mines, um, that we're, we're bringing onto the system. And so as much as, as mining, uh, can be portrayed as a, a bad actor in the environment, Unfortunately, the solution isn't, you know, slowly um, moving away from mining, it's actually a need to increase mining um, and of course do so properly. It takes approximately 12 to 15 years to license a mine from, from, this, you know, from, from early discovery to operations um, in BC and that's pretty similar probably globally. So it's not like you just say, oh, we need a bunch of, of copper and you just say, okay, let's start mining it. it, it it's a, a slow process. Um, and then the last thing that's superposed on top of that is, well, we have been mining and we've mined all the easy stuff. And that's sort of where the research comes in is that we're moving into unprecedented depths, unprecedented size. These mines have to get bigger to be able to m- just even try to keep up with demand, but they also have to go deeper. Uh, which invites a whole lot of challenges all around uncertainty because when you're mining something on surface, you know, large open pit mine, and we have a number of these in in the province, um, you have a lot more control and a means to adapt to unexpected changes in geology because you're at the surface. As soon as you will go underground, you're very constrained in terms of how you can adapt. Um, But that is the the future for BC is that a lot of our large open pit mines um, are going to reach the end of their mine life and they'll have to transition to underground. Um, And so a lot of our research is working internationally on these type of mining projects, but it's all bringing home the knowledge that's gonna be needed for the next generation of mines in in BC.
0: It's certainly true that historically, mining has been very uh, polluting, Um, but that doesn't mean that you just write it off as bad and to try to prohibit all mining. Instead, um, you take the approach that, well, then let's work with them and pick some of this low-hanging fruit. Um, and if we can make even a small change in the, pol- the large amount of pollution uh, caused by it, uh, then that's a monumental improvement rather than trying to improve industries that are already considered to be cleaner. Um, and, and, right? and, and,
1: yeah. And, and you know, science is always evolving. I, I remember... We're talking about a contaminated site um, in Saskatchewan uh, on on a you know on a riverbank uh, where it was traced to be a large source of, of mercury, and they're trying to say why is there mercury from this site? It, it, it's it's it wouldn't be, it's not naturally concentrated there, and what they found was a hundred years ago uh, the way you cleaned out a coal-fired locomotive was washing it out with mercury. You know would we do that today? No. So you know it's. We're always learning things, and and certainly there would have been a lot in terms of historical mining practices where they just didn't know better, um, you know. And there there has been a time, probably not too far, maybe we can even say today's time, where we sometimes treat resources as being infinite, and and so we can be extremely wasteful. But with time, you learn, uh, the science gets better, uh, and then you know you start bringing these policies in because, you know, mining companies aren't. You know, I guess we do talk about corporations as being entities, but these are people, Um, and there's, you know, there's, and and it's not a person. It's 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 teams of of engineers and geologists, and they all have families, and they understand how the world works, and they understand the importance of climate change. So they're not sort of some snidey whiplash character, you know, tweaking their mustache to say, "Oh, I'm going to make all this money." Uh, You know, are there bad actors? Of course, but overall, most if not all mining companies operate with some level of, of recognition that they need to mitigate the impact that they have on the environment. And as they learn more, um, and as they spend a lot, as they put more money into R&D and they continue to learn more, um, they close knowledge gaps and they improve, improve practices. It's not perfect, but, but I don't think anything in our society has ever reached a state of being perfect. We're always improving. We're always getting better.
0: I've heard this I heard this stated when I first started here um and I found it to be really true and it's that the people in this building are some of the fiercest environmentalists you'll ever meet and many of them are going into mining and that's the reason why because they care about the environment
1: and my mining companies do too right they this is where they operate this is where their commi- this is where their workers live um you know it's
0: it's it's well, many of those executives started off here. They are our students just grown up.
1: And so they, they understand and, and they have, you know, the different things that, that go into how they make decisions. And and of course, economics has to be one of them. There's a, a reality there. Um, I guess they, they have to be driven by shareholder value, but shareholder value is more than just what is the value of your shares, right? It's it's about how do you protect value, how do you look at it in the long term. And nothing is a Uh, is a bigger risk factor than having a um, if not, well, there's one thing bigger than environmental disaster and that's a disaster that takes human lives. Right. And so those are the two big things that sit there and that can shut down your operation. Um, Even for a small incident can shut it down for weeks or months. That's a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, yes, on the one hand you can say, Oh, they're, they're being driven by shareholder value and, and protecting that value. At the same time, they're trying to make their operations as safe as possible. The mining industry today has actually a, probably a better safety record now than most industries. Was that the way it was fifty years ago? Probably not. They've done a lot in terms of going from what how they used to operate to how they operate today in terms of being a very um, safety focused and driven, um, you know, corporate mentality. And and the same thing on on the environment, you know. Um, having uh, some kind of, of, of failure or ingress is, is on the one hand something that they don't want because they live in that community, they live in that environment. And yes, they've got an, a vested interest against it. So there's, there's pressures coming both from the financial side, but also just from the human side that, that they're always working towards improving the processes, improving safety measures, um, redundancy in safety measures to be able to protect against that. And yet it, in the world of geology, There's so much uncertainty um, that there's still going to be things that that can happen. I remember Donald Rumsfeld, that's going back a little bit. And, and, you know, people had made fun of of a speech he did. And probably there's a lot of things he did that you could easily make fun of. But he talked about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. And everyone thought, what kind of gibberish is that? But, But it resonated with those of us who work in geology and uncertainty because... There are no knowns. Yes, there's things that we know and we can very well predict and calculate. There's unknowns. We understand our limits. We understand where our variability and our uncertainty is. But when you get to geology, there's some things that you don't even imagine could have been possible. There's these unknown unknowns where we're always learning something where when it happens, the rest of the international community starts stands up and says, oh, what happened there? can can that happen to us? Because it was just something that, that no one had ever encountered before, just something you just would never think of as being even plausible. Um, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with it.
0: Well, it still strikes me as um, being almost clairvoyant, <laughs> being able to know what kind of uh, rock structures are buried and hidden kilometers deep within the planet.
1: Yeah, there's probably no shortage of, of talks I've seen where someone uses some kind of Superman you know, thing on a, on a PowerPoint slide showing X ray vision, looking into the mountain Pretty or much. looking into the ground, and and yet we don't have that. That's yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's why the ball is made of crystal. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned a few of the projects that you're working on right now. Uh, is there anything else you're working on?
1: You know, it 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 varies. It depends. You know. Um, so most of my research or, or the research, my group, I guess I'm more a research manager. It's, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm able to do much myself. I'm, I'm more working with my grad students and, and, and managing them. Most of our research right now is, 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 um, really uh, related around this story of, of, of copper and the hazards that are being encountered. So, um, you know, copper, um, when it's mined is actually a low grade mineral. It's, it's basically the, the deposits when they mine them are basically one, 2% copper. So you you have to mine large volumes of rock to get just a little bit of copper out. And of course, we need a lot of copper. And so they've moved towards these mining methods that have moved underground where they can mine large volumes of, of, of rock to be able to get this copper, but it then creates this huge disturbance to the ground. And so we're working around these sort of hazards that they're encountering um, that 20, 40, 50 years ago were... Oh yeah, we know of a mind who has experienced that, or we know of a mind that experienced, you know, something similar. To moving from an experience base, engineering is very experience driven. Moving from an experience base, where yeah, this is something that that we we've heard of before, to no, you're moving into um, unprecedented territory. Your mind is deeper than minds have been before of this type. Uh, your mind is bigger than minds of this type have been before. And so if you have engineering methods that are based on experience saying, you know, probability and likelihood and stuff like that, that starts to have less, has diminishing returns in terms of how you can use that when you're moving into something that hasn't been experienced before. And so that's what a lot of our research is, is is around ground hazards. It's when you move deeper, there's so much stress in the rock, the rock can explode, call it a rock burst. So how, you know, and and, and that that will kill people, uh, kill workers. So, how do you protect against that? How do you forecast when you're going to encounter that conditions? Because you can go down, you can be at your, your, your mine and 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 you might be at a, a thousand meters deep and you can go in this direction, and you have no problems, and you go in a different direction, all of a sudden the rock is exploding. So, how do you do, do first of all forecast that this is going to be an issue so that you have can have the right safeguards in place, right? It's one thing to say we're expecting it, and you bring your safeguards in. It's we work with operations that aren't expecting it. So how do you do a better job of being prepared and having those guards in place? The other hazard that we work with is what's called um, uh, an inrush. And what it is, is it's basically an underground debris flow. So people can think of landslides and debris flows, especially here in BC, Sea to Sky Highway is, you know, all these protection measures are there to protect the highway against debris flows. It's a very common landslide hazard that we face here. But you can encounter something very similar at a thousand meters depth or 500 meters of depth underground in a mine. Um, which again is just something that most mining operations would never expect um, but it's it's something that that is becoming more of a problem and we're working with operations um, in in other countries where it's where they've gotten developed around it because it's something that's very common to them and we're trying to help them modernize and use new engineering tools to better do a, a better job of of forecasting and mitigation and managing uh based on it happening very frequent and learning from that and then bringing it to operations um where you know they're encountering it for the first time and and often when they encounter it for the first time because it's unexpected it often is you know involves tragedy It you know often involves it can be fatality or near misses
0: that must be very rewarding knowing that you're making the world literally safer for workers
1: um it can be, you know, some of the pressure. Yeah, so from a research perspective, we sit in a position where we're helping the decision makers and and therefore we're, we don't have the pressure on us of the de- decision maker. Um, it's really difficult for the decision makers because they're having to make decisions. And, you know, it, luckily it's not often, but there is always this chance and it does happen that there could be a fatality. Nothing weighs on a person more than that, knowing that, they were somehow connected to a decision that somehow, even if it was unforeseen, ended in a fatality, that's it's a horrible thing. And, and and so you go to mining, most mines, and the safety culture is really, well, it's, it's more than what we have here on campus in our, our research labs and stuff like that. The mining industry has really pushed mine uh, safety to being like at the forefront of everything they do. Um, and yet, things still, still happen. So that's it. So it can be rewarding, but there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and it's all being done in the context of, of recognizing and taking a step back and, and, and agreeing with most of society of saying, here's an urgent problem, climate change, we need to solve this. And also having an engineer's head on to say, Oh, I understand how this has to be solved. Um, and, and seeing the, you know, how, you know it's going to be very hard to meet any of these these projections paris agreements net zero emissions um what is the other one the accelerated energy transition all these are are great on paper they're going to be very hard to achieve which again isn't very comforting sometimes when you just see how 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 <laughs> what's happening today when we're just trying to start these initiatives
0: absolutely uh what about gas do coal mines need to like have canaries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> first, for safety underground. Um, you know, that's one thing that I, I oh, sorry, have not compromise. been involved with, with is underground coal mines. Um, that's, so one of the first jobs I had was at the Quintec coal mine, which is an open pit coal mine up in Tumbler Ridge, BC. I was in Saskatchewan, but I was hired as a, a engineering summer student and came over there and I only worked there for four months, summer student. I swear for a year after that, I was coughing up little black chunks of dust, coal dust and stuff like that. that. That's an open air environment. And I was an engineer in the office most of the time. Yeah, the underground, so they don't take canaries underground. No, they've got sensors uh, because gas is, is is a key hazard. Um, a lot of the underground coal mining um, is in places like China, India, uh, also the US, but but you know, and, and, and uh, in places in Europe. Um, but on, on, on large scales, you see China and India. So there's technology there, but, um, you also see when, you know, you can read in the news, right? There's an explosion underground. Um, there's a collapse underground. Usually the explosion will causes a collapse. So sometimes when you hear the story, you hear about a collapse. It's probably an explosion that set it off. Not always, but, and, 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 and you can talk about large number of fatalities in those cases. Um, yeah, the underground coal mining is something that, so when we talk about getting off of fossil fuels, So when you talk about mining in general, to me, there are some mines that that it would be good to to start phasing out, you know, um, at the same time. uh, There are, of course, other mines where it's going to be part of the solution, not the problem. The coal mine, though, is an interesting one. One of the first exercises I had in terms of thinking about global energy was when I was an engineering student. We had to, all engineers have to take a class basically on the impacts of engineering on society. And I wrote a term paper about energy and so I did a bunch of research on it, you know, and it was just basically comparing, you know, this was back in, again, this would have been like 1990 something, you know, so 1991. But, you know, I did a lot of work looking at, okay, this is what coal is, this is what nuclear is, this is what hydro is, this is, and at that time, solar was a thing, wind locally, you know, Holland and their windmill, you know, but not really thinking about commercial wind farms, but it was about comparing and contrasting. The one interesting thing I came away with from that exercise was, yes, a belief in renewables, but also um, a moral question. The Western world for 200 years grew rich on cheap energy, and that cheap energy is fossil fuels, coal, and then more recently, uh, uh, oil and gas. Uh, But really, coal was, was one of the key drivers that has made the Western world wealthy. You now turn to large countries like India and China, who in present day, but let's say when I was looking at like 20, 30 years ago, it was yeah, 30 years ago, <laughs> um, you know, saying, hey, we see what you have and we want to have that same standard of living. Whereas we would turn around and say, oh no, well, well, coal is bad. We know coal is bad and we're getting rid of our coal. So that's good for us but we just came off 200 years of riches on that do we morally have the right to tell these other countries who want what we have that no it's bad you can't do that from a climate emergency perspective you have to stop that right you have to stop coal power but these are our countries that just want to have the standard of living that we have um and so to me i think that's quite a conundrum too it's it's you know china and and, and india are course some of the key users now of coal for energy. There's, other, of course, a lot of other countries that are doing it too, our country included. Um, but we're we have the rich, we have the the richness in our, our our society now to say, oh, we're phasing that out, or we're putting in technology uh, like scrubbers and clean scrubbers where our coal plants uh, aren't polluters anymore. That we take their pollutants and we put them immediately underground with sequestration, and all that is a really good solution. But it takes money. And it's not something that China or India are going to be doing it in any significant way. So, yeah, there's a lot of energy is a real tough one because it's easy for us, I think, as a Western world to say, we've learned a lot of hard lessons. We see what it's done to the planet. We need to change that. What do you tell to the countries that are just trying to follow in our footsteps? Um, Do we hold them down and say you can't do that?
0: Well, I was even thinking about that uh, this year with... um Everyone talking about the power shortages in Europe and and, and China um, and thinking how lucky we are living in this country because we've got all this access to hydropower, um, which is great for us in the south of the country, but it does impact the people who live in the, the communities where these hydro dams are going in. And just because you know, uh, Europe doesn't have these vast regions that they can afford to flood, uh, they have been... Hooked on coal, hooked on nuclear power. Um, yeah,
1: and and you get a little bit deeper into it, and you know that's one hundred percent right. You look at the Peace River and 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 the people who've been impacted by Site C, um, uh, and and that has to be balanced again against what Site C represents and um and what hydro represents, and and hydro where you have reliable water. So we have hydro in BC where depending on how much you 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 like our weather here, we're no shortage of water, right? <laughs> it, it, we're getting, you know, we get enough rain to keep our reservoirs f- full. Uh, you can look at China. China's been building a lot of hydroelectric dams, but they're emptying out because of their drought. Uh, look at Hoover Dam and and what's going to happen, you know, the, the energy supply and water supply that they provide in, you know, a number of, of cities that are basically built in deserts. Um, and so having a hydroelectric dam Um, is in some ways very damaging to the environment locally, but extremely beneficial broadly. And uh, so much so because it's not only not producing CO2, at least in terms of its energy generation. There can be some discussions about what it does in terms of the actual construction, and and that's all fair and stuff like that. Um, But it's about baseload. And we, because we have a richness of, of um, uh, hydroelectricity in BC, we don't experience things like brownouts and, and, and stuff, right? Um, and we can see other places like California uh, where they do run into these problems. And, and having worked in countries where you only have power for certain parts of the day, it's almost scheduled. Um, you know, we do live in a luxury position or we take for granted the energy that's available to us to, to run our buildings, our lights, our air conditionings, and and, and everything that relies on, on electricity. Um, and that hydroelectricity is a baseload that is very reliable. So we talk about renewables like wind and solar, and any discussion about wind and solar is always about batteries. How do you store that energy? How do you use it? Um, uh, I've worked on a number of projects in California where because they do have renewables, but renewables are intermittent, um, that they use what they call pumped storage. Well, pumped storage is, is that they basically use this excess energy that's just going to go wasted in the evening um, because you can't turn wind up and down. It's blowing or it's not. And so if it's blowing at the nighttime and you're generating that energy, what they do is they pump water into a reservoir. And then when they need that water, they run it through the dam. So as an, when you first think about it, it doesn't sound very environmentally friendly because it's it's, it's a net energy loss. You're spending more energy to pump water into the reservoir than you're gaining by running that water from the reservoir through the dam. But the thing about hydro is you can turn it on and off. You can turn it up and down. Um, And so it's, it's how you smooth out your baseline. If the wind is blowing and you don't need a lot of hydro, you turn your hydro down. If the wind's not blowing and you need, you don't want to brown out, you don't want your energy system to collapse. You turn up the hydro. And so hydro is a, a really nice way of evening things out. And that's what its value is. It's, it's in BC, we, we just, I think we're in some ways, well, I, I think we are. I think we're spoiled by having a very reliable, secure energy source that is also over its, its, its life very cheap. We have some of the cheapest energy in, in North America. I think it's only, the only cheaper jurisdiction is Quebec. Well, what's Quebec? Hydroelectricity. So it's, um, yeah, so the the energy is a really difficult discussion because people get, are impacted locally and it's, and you have to hear them. Um, and at the same time you say, okay, what is the alternatives? And people can start saying what the alternatives are, but if you actually dig down into the engineering and the pragmatic, something has to be done. Hydroelectricity is actually a, a very important, um, energy source.
0: Absolutely. It's funny, it's one of the earliest forms of electricity generation and yet it's still at the forefront and uh, gets a lot more interesting every time you d- dig into it.
1: And strangely, whenever they talk about green energy, they don't talk about hydro. I, that I, I don't really get other than there's a lot of people who protest hydro and so maybe they try to keep it out of the discussion. But I, I do see it as, as green energy. Um, And no different than solar or wind in the sense of people can say, oh, but look at how much CO2 emissions or or destruction to the land occurs when you're building a dam and you're flooding a reservoir. The reality is the same thing with solar and and, um, wind. And we don't see as much of it because a lot of the components are manufactured in places like China. You go to China, you can see lakes that are are each different colors of the rainbow um, because of the solar power cells that they're manufacturing there. And the chemicals needed to make you know the the, the, uh, the cells and stuff like that. So same thing with wind turbines. They take a whole lot of copper. They take a whole lot of materials. There's a lot of manufacturing. They have a huge green footprint in terms of the manufacturing and the installation. But that's then balanced by the fact that when they're generating electricity, they're doing so without generating CO2.
0: I'm curious, do you happen to know off the top of your head, what's the standard lifespan of a, a wind turbine?
1: they're always changing the the numbers I used to hear were 40 to 50 years i I, I know when I, I worked in California you can see multiple generations of, of wind turbines you know you can see the first generation um and 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 being replaced already with newer uh turbines that are are more efficient so the lifespan is is maybe a a de- depending on how you look at them is it the lifespan in terms of the operations and the materials, and then it comes, how well do you maintain them and, and so forth? Or is their operational life saying, oh, this unit is based on old technology where we can replace it with one that is, you know, 100% more efficient. Um, and, and so by, by getting rid of a, a wind turbine that actually works, still works, and replacing it, there's a gain because you're, you're just new technology, something that's more efficient, yeah.
0: True, excellent. A great way of avoiding my question. I, I um, I do the same thing when kids ask me questions that I don't know the answers to, um, and I answer the question that I want to answer, which I think you did very well.
1: Yeah. Well, it, and it's also just a, 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 it's it's like dealing with geology, right? Someone asks you a question. There's never a, a clear answer. It's always a vague. Well, it depends. The same thing in engineering, right? You know, is this safe? It depends, you know, how are you using it? What are you doing? Right. And the same thing with, with energy, you know, what is the lifespan? And it depends. How do you, how well are they maintained? Um, different companies will invest different amounts of, of money back into renewal. Uh, One of the places I remember working in, which I thought was a real catastrophe was Venezuela. Um, you know, yes, there was a lot of politics there with, with Chavez and, and stuff like that, but, um, they had a and it, people still point to it how can a country with so much you know oil wealth you know be in the situation that they were and when I was there um I wasn't working on oil I was working on um on on a mining slope improving safety. I was working with the regional government with a, like their, their version of the geological survey in terms of how to improve safety and in, in terms of minds like that. But, but you know, as everyone's sort of sitting around at the end of the day, you know, having a few drinks and everyone there was wearing their Chavez red ball cap and Chavez red t-shirt and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, having to toe the party line. Um, one of the things that we got into the discussion was, was about, you know, cause you'd look there and, and you could see this was a very impoverished country. And I, I, he said, you know, I, I was kind of surprised. I said, you have, you know, all this oil richness, like the number, whatever, three or four or five producer in the world. How can this country be so impoverished? Um, and not to get into the politics of it and, and you know, but, if, but what it was was political decisions to take the money coming in from oil and gas revenue um, and selling maybe subsidized or cheap gas to Cuba and to Central America. Anyone who was willing to shake their fist at the great Satan in the in, in United States. Um, but what they weren't doing was investing some of that money back into their infrastructure. And so, what they were on, and still today, you only have to read, was this downward spiral of, of not investing in terms of, of maintenance and renewal of their equipment. And so, as equipment was breaking down, they're producing less. Um, as they're producing less, they have less income. More equipment's breaking down, and they're on a da- downward spiral. I, I, that was just a that was maybe specific to what was happening in Venezuelan oil and gas, but it always resonated in me the importance of companies in terms of whatever energy you're producing, the value of taking some of that money and putting it back into your maintenance of, of that equipment. So that's I just come back to wind farms, like sort of a tangent there. But it's like how long do wind wind turbines last? I believe they're becoming their their lifespan was shortened than what they're expected because of Changes in technology, but overall, whether it's wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, it's it's how well do you maintain it, and and how how proactive are you? Um, we're not always the best at being proactive. We're generally very reactive when it comes to energy and things going wrong and failure and things failing.
0: It's a great uh, metaphor or analogy for uh, any organization, I guess. You need to reinvest in the um organization
1: yeah you have to invest in people you have to invest in your equipment you have to invest in your community you know um a healthy community um creates healthy workers and 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 you know that's yeah And, and 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 it's people's lives like if i guess if you look at how much of your life you spend working you know it's it, it, there shouldn't be that much of a separation between, I guess, your company and, and your community. Um, they should be integrated uh, in a positive way. And I guess what we find sometimes is that they're integrated in a negative way. And that's part of the engineering challenge. I think engineering is is not just about calculating to build something. Uh, a lot of part of what we teach in, in geological engineering as in all branches of engineering are things like commu- communication. Um, uh, and, and then you start thinking about community engagement. Um you think about lessening your impacts. It's 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 also recognizing that necessity becomes the mother of invention. Um, and it was interesting. I was up in northeastern BC, uh, where they have you know the unconventional gas industry, um, and that at the time when that industry started, they required huge amount of waters, and 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 you you know where are they getting that water? They're redirecting it from you know streams, rivers, and, and so forth, um, and it's in a region that has. Yes, the spring freshet, so it can, you know, you can get a lot of rain, but it also has a summer drought, and so for an intermittent water supply and an industry that needs water continuously, there was again big clashes then between those operators and the local communities and the rights holders, the First Nations, um, uh, and quite correctly so, from their perspective, uh, this was, you know, they need water to to. To to drink to live, um, whereas these companies need it as part of their operations, so there there is a, a conflict there, um, and it's a conflict that still re- resonates with those communities. But in the meantime, because there was a conflict and there was a necessity, what a lot of those companies did was they started off thinking about okay, how can we lo- reduce our, our impact on water? And I think it you know you know in some of the companies I won't name companies, but some companies it did things like uh, building. Um, uh, water treatment plants in local communities where they could take the community's brown water, treat it, and then use it for their own needs. So to reduce some of their, their impact. And, the, and it's kind of funny, I think, in a sense, they had just built this as a, uh, and, and spent a lot of money to build it when some smart chemist came along and said, Hey, I can take all this saline wastewater, um, that you're using and I can change it to suit your purposes so that you don't even need fresh water. And then and, and then before you know it, all this, this demand for, for fresh water, a lot of it just dropped off almost immediately. Um, because all of a sudden they had they could use saline water or water that was not potable, and it was actually, I think, in the end, I think it was even cheaper than using, you know, fresh water. And so there was an economic play, there was a, a community play, it is all these things that, that that all of a sudden led to this this significant step change in their water needs, but going there, you could still see that there were scars. And and so that's part of that integrating with communities and especially rights holders in the, in the terms of the first nations and stuff like that. And, and you know how they've been um, sometimes left out, often left out of these conversations. It's, it's less and less now, but there certainly was a lot of transgressions in the past. Um, and so it's, Integrating with these communities, it's hearing them. And by hearing them, there are engineering solutions. It's just sometimes we're not the best at communicating to the public. And so we're going off into our labs and we're coming up with these solutions and we implement them without really telling anyone. And 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 yet there's still sometimes that animosity that that's there. And 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 of course, (laughs) that's where you do the the sometimes and it's a gray and stuff like that. There's still, of course, localized areas where the animosity should be there, where there is still bad actors and stuff like that. So by no means is there something like we've solved all the problems, but, um, but you know, that's, that's, I think how these things evolve is that, um, there's a, a necessity, um, there's community, um, you know, uh, you know, outpourings of, of saying, Hey, this is impacting us. And it's then listening and saying, okay, what are the engineering solutions that can, can lessen that impact?
0: Yeah. The- Communication is uh, absolutely key and it, it seems to be one of the emerging trends in many projects. Um, even if a person has the best of intentions um, and the plan is completely benign or nearly benign, um, if a person arrives in a community with this whole plan thought out and hasn't communicated that to the community, they naturally get suspicious and um Yeah, and, yeah, and, and that
1: communication is is not only how to communicate, but also how to engage i don't know if that's right but right word but, but you know we we do we we teach you know all all engineers have to take courses on communication you know oral and written communication um, it's embedded in a lot of our classes doing presentations and so forth like that but it's one thing to present something from your perspective of saying okay i've been looking at the problem i've broken down the problem this way and here's my solutions to the problem and trying to communicate that right? Trying to not use a lot of jargon. So in some ways we think communication of how do I take this complex thing? How do I simplify it without using a lot of jargon so that, that the community can understand, but that's one way communication. The next communication is them screaming at you and shaking their fist saying, you know, my family has been on, you know, this land for, you know, hundreds of years and now you're, you know, we're being moved off of it thinking about, you know, sightseeing and stuff like that, or, um, your industry is having this communication on our traditional way of life, you know, uh, and, and we have this traditional knowledge and we had these, these plants that we relied on for our health and, and and our medicines, um, that are, are disappearing and no one's explaining to us why all of a sudden they're, they're disappearing. What has changed now that they're dying out? And so you get that coming back and you're sitting there as an engineer and saying, I, I don't know anything about, biology or botany or I, I can't explain that and so it's about how do you communicate but communication has to be two ways it's not about so I think where we've evolved in our, our and how we approach communication or where we're trying to evolve at least in in UBC and in a number of our, our engineering program and courses is is recognizing it's a two-way dialogue and so how do you take something complex and communicate it to the public but also how do you receive feedback from the public and um, and how do you build that into your design process?
0: Absolutely. That's the, uh, the next uh, step that uh, society seems to be moving toward.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, it's a, sometimes it requires some patience. Sometimes there's not room for patience. Uh, but engineering design, we often say is iterative, right? We come up and we say, okay, we think we've solved the problem. Oh, wait, here's some more things for you to consider. Okay, it goes through another iteration. Okay, how can we address those? And these are complex Projects are complex systems. We have to break down that complexity into simple things, um, and so it's through that iteration. and And it's um, it's about having in that feedback uh, loop. How do you you know take into uh, consideration you know community concerns um, that can range from something where someone will say something to you. I, I remember I was contacted <laughs> once, and and there was this loud. Grinding sound that was echoing through a valley, and I was asked, "Is that plate tectonics?" And, and it was a reporter. People are 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 worried. There is this, you know, indication that there's going to be a large earthquake. And it, and it and and right off my mind, I said, "Plate tectonics." Like you're saying that you hear a loud grinding grinding sound, and you think it's plate tectonics. So in my head, at first, I thought that that's crazy, but you can't say that out and it, and it stops you and you think, can you hear plate tectonics? <laughs> I had to ask myself that. In the end, I I, I I said to him, I said, I'm pretty sure it's not plate tectonics. I'm, I'm sure it's probably something, you know, human activity or something like that. And in the end, I think it was a couple days later, it turned out it was someone was sharpening the blade on a snowplow or something like that. And the grinding noise was just e- echoing throughout this entire valley somehow. It was so loud and echoing, but you get those things, right? And so there's some things that you hear and you say. Oh, that's crazy, but you can't just react that way because sometimes someone will say something to you that at first sounds crazy to you, but you're coming at it from an experience base and this could be outside the experience space. This could be something new. This could be something unexpected and often, and it should be in most engineers' minds, often when something goes wrong, it's because of something unexpected. A plane doesn't crash because one component fails. It used to a long time ago, but we've gotten better and we've we solved these problems. Now it has to be two or three things failing and some safety system also failing before it gets to that level, which is why there's so few plane crashes. It's it's something where there's a lot of redundancy and safety built into it, but it doesn't mean sometimes something doesn't happen. And you can just see in the news, there's a lot of effort when a plane crashes, there's a huge investigation to try to figure out what they'll ground, they'll ground all planes of the similar make just to say, wait. Are we sure that this can't happen again? And so there's always some things that, that, that can happen that are are unexpected outside our experience base. So, so that's part of that communication with the public. <laughs> How do you hear something that you say, well, that doesn't sound right at all, and sort it out in terms of when it is something where it's just a misconception versus no, this is maybe a warning, something we didn't expect, something that we do need to account for. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna go back in the interview a little bit. Uh, You mentioned your work in the coal uh, mine as well as your work in Venezuela. Uh, One of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing about people's field stories. And it sounds like you've worked all around the world. Um, I've personally never worked in the field, but it sounds like this crazy place where uh, stories that I find comical, maybe you didn't find them comical at the time, uh, (laughs) happen all the time. Uh, Do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share?
1: Ah, oh, probably have quite a few if I actually sat down and thought about, them. um, you know, there's, there's things where, of course, one of the great things about working around the world is, is seeing other, you know, cultures and, and, um, and there are a good stories. I, I, you know, one of the projects I, I, I was really looked back on and say one of the projects I'd maybe be proudest of in terms of, of human impact was a, a hydro, uh, wasn't hydroelectric. It was a water conveyance project in Peru. Um. You know we're used to if we take a, a Vancouver setting, right? We, our our weather patterns go from the come from the ocean and go west to east, and so these water heavy clouds hit our mountains. We get all the rain, and you go just on the other side, we have the rain shadow where Kamloops and so forth are sort of in this desert climate. And in Peru, it's it's the opposite. Their weather is going east to west, so it comes off the Amazon, uh, hits the Andes, rains a lot there, and on the west side is desert. But the big difference is the west side is where you're on the ocean, which is where your populations want to be, because that's where your ports are and that's where your transportation access is. So you look at Lima um and and a lot of of, of where Peru is, and they've they're basically big cities in the desert. Um and in the and 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 it's okay a little bit in where Lima is, but if you go further north in Peru, it's a very impoverished area. And so working there, um, and you see the standard of living, you know, people not having electricity, not having running water, using outhouses. Um, and you see that and they're, they're very happy people, very, uh, you know, uh, industrious in terms of their use. And you see things like you'll be driving along and you see all these buildings that are up against, um, the mountainside, um, with all these tires stacked on their roof and you sort of say, that just a way of them getting rid of like old tires, but they take their old tires, they put them on their roofs and they use them as rock fall attenuators. So that any rocks that are falling off of the cliff. I would otherwise smash through their home, hits these tires, theoretically, and bounce off them and, and continue. Um, but, but the project I worked on was um, driving this 20 kilometer tunnel through the Andes, connecting the east side, where it rains a lot, to the west side, where it's a desert. Um, uh, Called the, the Transian, uh, Transandina Tunnel. It's the Almost Water Project. But basically, what they did is they brought all this water then from the east side of the Andes and they bring it to the west side and they've opened this whole area up into agriculture um, uh, and and improving the lives of, of the people there. But I guess coming back to your question about funny stuff, yeah, you know, you go there, you don't speak the language very well, you're working at a camp and there's sort of like a large worker camp and, and cafeteria. And um, many times you sit down to a meal that You don't know what it is. They maybe even have it in Spanish. And just when someone's pulling out their phone to translate what it is, you sort of caution them and saying, look, if you don't know what, if you don't know what the answer is, don't ask the question. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure we ate our fair share of guinea pig. Um, and, That's something that as long as I don't know it, but I'm sure if I sat there and like, what's on the menu for today? Guinea pig. What's on the menu for tomorrow? Guinea pig. I'm sure I probably would have lost a lot of weight there and stuff like that. So
0: I think that's a good suggestion uh, when traveling abroad. (laughs) Sometimes don't look it up till you get home.
1: Right. Be open to new experiences and sometimes you don't need to know what that new experience is right away. Let it settle in and then…
0: You're clearly really passionate about your work and a huge advocate for uh, geological engineering. Uh, But what's the best part about it?
1: Well, you know, I think that's different for different people. But you know, when we talk to our our, um, alumni, you know, we graduate about uh, thirty to forty geological engineers a year. Uh, Most of them, at least those who want to work in 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 geological engineering, are, are are almost instantly employed. There are sometimes ups and downs, of course, in the Canadian economy, but it's a profession that's in a very high demand, um, and Vancouver is a key international center um, for uh, engineering co- consulting companies who do geological engineering that provide that service internationally. And so, you know, our, our students are almost snapped up immediately uh, by these consulting companies when they graduate, and um, and so when you talk to them. And, and sometimes it resonates with me. So one of the things I look back uh, and I enjoyed, yeah, it was these opportunities to not only work around the world as a tourist in some ways, being able to go see the world, which was maybe the motivator is like, oh, when I went to Switzerland, it wasn't because it was a great job. It turned out to be a great job. But I went because I thought a you know, kid from Saskatchewan, I get to live in Europe for like, you know, up to like, I don't know, however long, like six years, I'm going to live in Europe. That Switzerland is a tiny country. That's like, the size of Vancouver Island. You can travel to all these countries. And so I went to Switzerland thinking that this was a great tourist you know, opportunity. And everyone else who sort of knew where I was going and a job and something like said, what a fantastic career opportunity. I just kind of looked and said, "Oh well, yeah, I, I guess it kind of was. So one of the things I've really enjoyed was being able to see the world um, and experience the world. Something that I could imagine. you know, I, I grew up in the inner city in Regina and I could never imagine that that would have been the life that I would have had Going to university was a was going to be a stretch and 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 so you just sort of say university was a stretch, grad school was you know something that certainly was never on I don't even, never even thought about grad school until I was probably a fourth year engineering student, um, I probably didn't even know that my TAs were grad students I was probably quite oblivious to that and I thought what are yeah I guess they're TAs I guess, never really thought about it oh I guess they 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 must be what I now understand are oh graduate students oh universities do research I didn't know universities did research I just thought they were there for teaching. So you you just sort of look and you look at that projection. So traveling the world is one of the things I really enjoyed. For some of our graduates who are out there working um, in consulting, they like the variability. They like the travel, but they also like the fact that they're they're not just doing one thing and that's what they're doing for the next 10 or 20 years. They might be doing something in terms of their specialization, but they might be for six months applying it to a hydroelectric project. And now, for another the next project comes, and for six months, they're applying it now to a uh, landslide protection scheme up at Whistler. And now they're taking it, and they're applying it to um, a highway improvement. And now they're taking it. So the variability, we get a, a feedback from our 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 alumni, and they really like the 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 variety of of that they see in the work. So the travel, um, working outdoors, the variety of, of of work, the variety of projects. Uh, I think those are the things that really make geological engineering very attractive as an engineering uh, program or discipline, a profession.
0: Well, you may have won me over. (laughs) Um, Of course, nothing is all sunshine and rainbows. There are some downsides as well. So uh, what would you say is the worst or the most challenging part of your job Um, or your
1: work? um, Again, sometimes it comes down to specifics. For me, the travel that I thought was, that was exciting and, and, you know, uh, great is also sometimes the burden, um, traveling can be quite exhaustive and, you know, I've got a family. And so it's not like when I was younger and I could go off to, um, Brazil for a project for a week and then take a week of holidays, uh, or go to Australia for, you know, a project for a month and, and, then you know, and, and travel around stuff like that, um, it's hard to take that much time away from family. So I I do try to bring my family with me when I can, but you know, kids are in school and stuff like that. You know, you're also limited. So sometimes traveling, I I do crazy travels like it next, not this week, but next week I have to go to Copenhagen. So I fly off. I'm there for like four days and I fly back and everyone's going to ask me how was Copenhagen was. And all I'm going to be able to tell them is how good the meeting room was and how good the hotel was. And maybe we got out for an evening and went for dinner and drinks with the different engineers I'm working with. And, um, and so often I do those things, where you know you fly to the other side of the planet, Australia. That's such a grueling trip, and I sometimes go to Australia, go to the mine, do what I do, and then I come back right away, so that my family—I'm not leaving my family too long. So tra- travel can be a blessing; it can be also too much, and can be a bit of a, a curse. I, and-
0: <laughs> I can imagine uh, that Australia trip. Yeah doesn't sound like fun. It's it's hard to complain about it.
1: It's it's, it's that's a, I don't to talk about privilege, but you just sit there and you're complaining about having to go to Australia, boo hoo, right? It's like um so but but that that's to me the the challenges are sometimes also just um dealing with something where you have to make really important decisions where there's so much uncertainty involved. And it weighs on you in terms of second guessing and thinking about it. And um, so I, I think it's an it's an exciting part of geological engineering. Um, and for the formal for the most part, it is. But when you become a decision maker, um, or you're the person informing a decision maker, the liability the liability sometimes can can weigh on you a little bit too. And I and I feel for the the people I have colleagues who've been involved where. Where they've been involved with fatalities, um, I often get called in after the fatality, so it's not a good thing to begin with. But you're going there and you're trying to understand why it happened um, and how to improve measures. So that sometimes is 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 good, but you're working with the people who were there, uh, who knew the person, um, and and I think that's that's also a really tough thing to to, to have that weigh on
0: you. Sounds stressful. I, yeah. I do not envy that. <laughs> um, I'm curious. Uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your uh, studies or work?
1: I grew up in um, uh, the inner city, North Central Regina. Um, it's Some people refer to it as an uh, urban reserve, which it isn't, but it, it is a community that is predominantly uh, First Nations. And so, growing up in that, uh, you know, all my friends and 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 schoolmates and stuff like that, um, never really thought about it growing up. But I certainly look back at it now, and I see the different paths. Uh, my daughter always asks me about, you know, this person from my class and that person from my class. And sometimes it's not a good story. And I do so. In in that sense, I certainly do not look at myself as being from um, underrepresented community. I, I look at myself as being almost the epitome of privilege of growing up in a very poor inner city neighborhood. um, And basically being able to get out of that through mechanisms like student loans from mechanisms like having supporting family who encouraged me to go to university and and said, if that didn't work out, you know, something else will. Um, And so when I look at where I got to from that, um, I certainly was maybe at the beginning because of student loans, um, but certainly something in that I'm sure is, is deeply embedded is just, yeah, been, I've been very fortunate, very privileged.
0: Well, certainly uh familial wealth is a, a big indicator of a person's success. So, uh, overcoming that is quite, quite ad- admirable. Uh,
1: and that's what I, I can't say I really overcame much when I know the challenges of those around me. Right. So to me, what did I have to do? I had to take out student loans. I had to. Look at something. I I remember when I first, when I finished my first year of engineering, I got a a relatively good summer job working for Sastel, which was the local telephone company, running wires and stuff like that in a switch room. Back in the old days, when people had to dial the phone, and and there was a switch room or push buttons, and it, it, yeah, right. Um, And I looked at that, and it was a job that probably paid I don't know, probably forty or fifty thousand a year. So to me, one of the biggest decisions I made was I saw that and I said, man, this is a job I. I enjoy it. Look, it pays like forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, um, and that was like already for me it was almost aspirational. And now I look back and I say, boy, that would have been a, a a really bad path for me to have taken. I'm glad I, in the end, decided, well, I better go back to school because the easy path was school was hard. Here's a good job. You go to school to get a job, a good, good, good job. Here I now have a good job. I could keep it. Um, I didn't have to go back to school. And I think it was more that I was enjoying university, sort of the party life, probably more than anything. I thought, ah, you know, this will always be here. I can come back to it. I'm going to go back to university and have some more fun. And and then all of a sudden it opened up a real path for me, a real path um, uh, out of there. So, you know, uh, I, I think when you talk about, you know, people talk about privileges, I'm like, I think I've just been very privileged to have the opportunities that presented them to me when they did. And the support to be able to take a chance sometimes and 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 go for it, and and not and and not everyone has that opportunity, or has those opportunities, or the privilege in a sense to be able to take an opportunity.
0: As a side note, uh, before this interview, uh, you and I were chatting, and I shared the story about how uh, at the height of the pandemic, we were having a uh, Zoom staff meeting, and I took a screenshot of all the participants that I could see in my screen. And it was um, myself and you and uh, uh, Mark Jelinek and the department head um, who was talking at the time about uh, making strides in diversity and promoting diversity within the department. and all of us uh, look very similar. We're all uh, Caucasian men with shaved heads and very similar facial hair at the time. And I sent it to a friend of mine and said, I don't know what he's talking about. We're a very diverse department. <laughs>
1: I took my lead from Bruce Willis. But, but mine I was, that. that's funny. I came I came from my interview here in 2002 um, and I had my hair. Um, I was probably balding, but I had my hair. And in between that and when and then being offered the position, then moving here from from Zurich. Uh, In the meantime, I I worked on a project in um, the UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates. And so you're out in the desert, and there's sand all the time in your hair and stuff like that. I thought, I'm in the middle of the desert. No one's going to see it. I'm going to shave all my hair off. So I just shaved all my hair off for the convenience of it, um, inspired by Bruce Willis. I said, you know, he's, you know, here's a big movie star, you know, at that time. And stuff. I'll just shave all my hair off, and I'll call it the Bruce Willis look. And a couple of the people I worked with, they said, hey, that looks good on you. And I thought, oh, well, thank you. And, and then the, and then it just stuck, yeah. So when I came here and I took um, my my dear friend and and uh, unfortunately departed colleague, Oldridge Hunger, I just remember the first time I came, because I'd met Oldridge a couple of times, not only from my interview, but from professional meetings amongst geological engineers, and stuff like that. I came and I had all my hair shaved off and he looked at me and said, <laughs> and, and I know he was, he about, but yeah, I think he, he was concerned that, you know, are are you into like right wing ideologies or anything like that? I said, no, 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 no. This is, this is Bruce Willis. It's
0: not like anything more than that. You know, yeah. that is something that's often on my mind, making sure that I'm I'm not mistaken for uh, a person who shaves their head for that reason. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, you know, I just yeah, I didn't even think about it. And, and older said something. He said, no, 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 no. And then and, and, yeah, and then all of a sudden you become self cautious oh, yeah. about it.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a struggle for for bald men. <laughs> Um speaking of of which uh one thing that we've all had to deal with this past uh, few years has been the pandemic um has it impacted your work?
1: um to some degree, you know, there are some projects where I was supposed to go to mine site and um and obviously there was no travel, so um you know those projects got delayed um from the teaching side here at UBC. Um, you know, we all had to adapt and, and so how do you adapt when it's a branch of engineering where you have to, you know, it's hands-on you're from something as simple as rock and mineral identification to being out in the field and, and making observations. Um, and we had to do that virtually, you know, we scanned all these hand samples, all these rocks and minerals, we scanned them in. So we had these 3d models so that students on computers could turn them around and stuff like that. But they couldn't do any of the diagnostics and, and and the kind of things you need. So I think that was one of our, our real challenges, certainly the field training. You know, we've graduated now, or at least during the pandemic, a couple of years of engineers who who were limited in the field experiences and exposure they got. Now, they go off to work for companies and companies train them. And so they're getting that training. But um, I think that was a, a lot of challenges. It certainly was something that we we adapted to as best we can. But it, it wasn't like, oh, we solved that problem. Oh, we did just as good a job. We did the best job we could. I think we were creative in terms of of the work we did. The university certainly put a lot of resources into it, um, into making this as good as possible. But it certainly wasn't the same as 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 in person instruction, at least in some components. There are some things that that work well in uh, online, but there's some things that really do need to be hands on um, or or in person. And uh, so there was a. You know that struggle, but you know you look at at what other people had to deal with um during the pandemic, and yeah our our problems are were were relatively minor uh compared to all that, so I didn't find myself that impacted. My wife liked the fact that I was working from home more um family wise so so it was actually pretty good, I think from the family um you know so yeah, we were very fortunate,
0: yeah, I've always been uh, shocked that um the faculty, the department, were able to uh, make that transition for some of these courses because I can't imagine uh, teaching rocks, gems, uh, minerals, uh, and structures like you said without doing field work or being able to physically handle something. Yeah,
1: and now the challenge is going back. Right, the the students like the idea of of being at home and watching lectures. Um, sometimes they come to expect it, and um, but we've we've seen a decline in grades. Um, a small decline, but in you know, I, I can take a, a large class that, that I, I teach in terms of earth science for engineers. Um, and so we've been teaching that, you know, I've been teaching that class for probably 15, 16 plus years. So you know we have data, and we, we know the level of the exams and, and, and the questions we ask and, and how students are performing. And we saw a dip, a downward dip during the pandemic. Um, and even last year, which was a, sort of a hybrid, where we returned to in-person, but I think for the first month or two, we were still providing lectures online for international students who who hadn't gotten to Canada yet. Um, and we could see how n- not only those students who needed those online lectures because they weren't in Canada yet, but even the students in the classroom, we had no way of separating and saying, oh, here are the videos online just for those who need them. All students had access to them. Uh, we saw attendance in our class drop by easily 50%. and uh, And we saw the grades reflecting that. Yeah. And that's something, you know, this department does a fantastic job with our, our science and, and, and teaching learning fellows. Um, and UBC in general has, puts a lot of money and resources in terms of, of how we can teach better. And I think it'd be very really interesting for them to dig down in terms of why is sitting in a class that much more beneficial than watching the exact same lecture, but doing so online. Is there more distractions at home? Are they not paying attention as much? Is there something in person? Um, maybe they already know the answers, but that that's me. I'm just quite curious to that, just to see just experiences from the last two or three years where we had completely online to, before that, completely in person. And now one year of, of sort of a hybrid where next year we're, or this year, we're going to be completely in person again. Um, and, and students are somewhat complaining about it. Uh, they want the videos. They want to have these these lectures um videoed and stuff like that the rooms are all outfitted now to automatically do this it's easy the question is just because we can do it just because we spent a lot of money to do it should we do it that's you know so there's a lot of questions i think that'll come out of this hopefully all pointing towards improving even further how we you know um how we improve learning in 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 our, our classes
0: yeah the past few years have been a radical experiment in uh distance education
1: at a time where, where we had been talking about it before, it would be interesting to see what the rethink is because, or, or, or how we improve it. But we've had distance ed classes. Um, we're, we're developing distance ed programs for people who are working in remote communities or remote sites to be able to, you know, access geological engineering grad classes, uh, graduate level classes that they wouldn't otherwise have opportunity to do so because, you know, they're not a center. And so it's a good question is, is you know, um, how do you make those, those experiences effective?
0: Certainly, yeah. And what can we learn from each system to uh, hybridize into the best system uh, possible? Um, You've painted a really convincing picture of geological engineering. Um, If anyone's listening right now and is considering uh, following in your footsteps, what courses or experience or just background would you recommend that they pursue uh, to become a geological engineer?
1: Yeah, you know, I became a geological engineer and, and the work I do is through, you know, a certain path. And and of course there are different paths to get to the same similar destination. Um, if I was talking to high school students, what I always tell high school students is regardless probably of almost anything, um, well, I, that's maybe too much, but but I basically always encourage high school students to take as much math and the sciences as you can. You know, yes, it's tempting to take an extra um, study break or whatever they call it, like a free period. Um, maybe it's it's tempting to take, um, in my day, what we call home economics or, or shop or something like that. Um, you know what? You're in grade, you, you get to grade 12 and then you're making a decision of what you want to go into. And you're in a better position having extra math and science that you don't need because you're cho- choosing a program at a university that doesn't require it versus choosing what it what turns out to be quite a few programs that do require that and not having it. So to me, if I look back on things, what I've always benefited from was being in the position to take advantage of an opportunity. Um, and so I would, that's what I would communicate to, to high school students, especially put yourself in a position where you can take advantage of the opportunities. And that's so load up on science and math. It's certainly, if you go into engineering, that's a must. So, being more specific than to geological engineering, take science and math. Um, you'll have to pick an, an uh, engineering school that has geological engineering, not all of them do. Um, but UBC was the very first 100 years our program has been here at, uh, around and and now you see it replicated around the world. Uh, most, almost all countries and, and a lot of universities do have geological engineering now, but it all started here at UBC. Um, so, but you so you want to pick a school that, that that offers geological engineering in Canada. It's it's places like UBC, University of Saskatchewan, Queens, uh, Waterloo, uh, Laval, uh, uh, University of New Brunswick, uh, Chacoutimi. So you know there's a, a, a number of, of, of universities that do them, but not all universities. Um, and then the other one is um, the pathway into geological engineering is through um, engineering schools. In some countries, they have what they call engineering geology, and that's geology schools or or geology programs where they teach engineering, whereas geological engineering or engineering students who learn geology. Um, So you know you'll you'll want to make sure that you um, and and this is what we often deal with uh, with with students who are are maybe studying geology and they want to do geological engineering. um, They have to change faculties. They have to transfer from science into engineering. So the pathway into geological engineering is through um, applied science, faculty of applied science here at UBC. So that's the first step is getting admitted into the faculty of applied science. And then after your first year of common engineering, then you get to choose what program you want to go into. And that could be geological engineering. It could be materials engineering, mining engineering or the big ones like electrical and and civil and mechanical. Now, computer engineering is, of course, big biomedical engineering engineering is a very diverse um, uh faculty and there's a lot of different engineering programs now today um, that can be anything from big programs to really specific programs like manufacturing engineering um so yeah so I think choose the programs of course and the the, the career path that that you think is is you know is going to interest you um, there's different ways of coming you know to being Interest in your work and and I don't know passionate about your work um uh and 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 the one that I deal with most as a director of geological engineering is is either attracting students who are in first year engineering and just telling them this is what geological engineering is as they're making their decisions of what engineering program they're going to do but I see also a lot of people who come to me who already have degrees in geology or sciences um, they found that maybe the work that they're doing was interesting but they're able to look at their you know, their colleague, the geological engineer, what they're doing is saying, I want to do that. Um, and then the opportunities are either coming back for a second degree, or uh, we also have a professional master's degree where they can come back and on top of their geology degree, they can sort of have a master's of geological engineering uh, built on top of that. So yeah, there's a lot of paths to get there. So I think it's just knowing the path that you want to be on and, um, and hopefully having the opportunity then to be able to put yourself on that track. Yeah.
0: You mentioned the master's program, and you also mentioned that you've got a bunch of grad students earlier. Uh, what do you look for when you're choosing your grad students?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's always a a, a learning curve for us, too. Um, yeah, geological engineering, we have actually quite a few programs. We have our undergraduate in geological engineering, our bachelor of geological engineering. We have a master's of engineering in geological engineering, which is a course-based master's. We have a, to confuse it, we have a master's of applied science in geological engineering, which is our research master's. And then we have a PhD in geological engineering. So we have our own PhD specifically in geological engineering. What do I look for? Um, I look for students. I, I do like students who have industry experience. They've, they've maybe gone out and worked for two or three years. Um, they've learned some discipline uh, in terms of working in a professional environment and having to be, um, responsible for your time and, and, and being efficient, effective with your, their time. And they're exposed to what the problems are. So a lot of my research is almost all my research is applied research. We're solving problems that are in industry. So it helps when people have worked in industry and they say, Oh yeah, I do know what that problem is. Yeah. We, we deal with that problem all the time. So I, I, like, I do like students who have a few years of, of, of work experience, but you know, there's some specifics, you know, if, if my work is rock engineering, do they have a background? Do they have already done some rock mechanics? Do they have that in their degree? Were they strong students? Do they have good recommendations? Um, but I like, yeah, I like students uh, who can also be um, independent thinkers. Um, I I look at myself as not having any motive to conduct a research program that's that's personal to me. I have my ideas, I have the things that I think are important, but if I look at what are the research projects that we're doing, we're working with industry, so we're trying to solve problems. Um, but also what we're trying to do is, what I look at it is, is creating opportunities for people who have ability. And so for me, I put my time into, in a sense, creating opportunities and, and these people then go out and work and, and they graduate and they work and, and they're contributing to their communities. And I see that as part of the bigger picture. So. What do I want? I, I don't want someone who comes and, and asks me, so what should I do? Because to me, it's, I can maybe at the beginning start off and, and of course, give them a lot of direction, but I, I, I want people who can get it when I say, okay, here's the problem. Here's some initial ideas. I don't have the answers. If I if I already had the answers, there'd be no need for the research. Here's what I think the answer is, but I want you to take that as a seed and now I want you to go off and grow it. So I like people who are strong, independent thinkers come to me. Yes, let's have discussions. Let's, 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 you know, let's discuss it. I can give you my experience. I can share what I think. Um, but, uh, you know, this isn't, um, a hierarchical system where you, you're just doing a job and you report into me each day and I give you an assignment to say, okay, today you do this. Okay. Tomorrow you do that. So uh, that's one of the things I do try to find are people that I, 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 and it's hard to, to, to find that sometimes in terms of how to, how do you, uh, Uh, Screen for this, but I I like people who are strong independent thinkers who are motivated and they take. I look at it as I'm creating an opportunity. So I like it when I see them saying, Hey, I'm taking this opportunity and I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to do this.
0: Speaking of being motivated, um, I know that while you're going through your grad program, it can be very uh, demotivational at times. Um, And there's the cliche of the the person who finishes their program and uh, wants to leave the field. Um, as you were going through your, your grad studies and your PhD, did you have anyone who is uh, inspirational or, or motivational to you?
1: I'm, I'm sure there's, there's, there's plenty of people that I've worked with. You know, I've worked with a lot of brilliant engineers and scientists and and I find them all, uh, you know, I, I, I have immense amount of respect for them and, and, and look up to a lot of them, um, you know, the That to me that what I found was, was people who left the field um, or weren't so much leaving the field, the, if they left grad studies or if, if, if their grad studies was cut short or if they rushed it in the end, it was only because they had really good opportunities after. I think that was one thing where, where it's a little bit of a, a selective feedback from my perspective is that um, because the job demand is, is really high, it's hard for me to hold on to good people. Uh, without losing them to industry here's someone who did a fantastic job on the master's degree they should be a PhD student I'm going to bend over backwards to create opportunities and they say thanks but no thanks they're off to the industry because they got a really good offer um, but yeah of course there's a lot of people I, I can think about my own professors and teachers that I had um, uh, you know Professor Doug Stead who uh, was at the University of Saskatchewan and then he was at the Camborne School of Mines then he was at Simon Fraser University it's funny how you always cross paths so when 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 I came to UBC, it was probably two years before that, he came from, uh, he came from Camborne School of Mines in the UK to Simon Fraser University. So we went from being together at the University of Saskatchewan to, you know, I don't know how many years later, being, you know, in Vancouver or, or at least the greater Vancouver area together. Um, there's some fascinating, there's some fantastic people I, I, I work with, uh, Dr. Peter Kaiser, who's who's now retired. Um uh, Alan Moss, who's in in the city here, is someone who I've I, who's really helped me a lot in terms of uh, working together with him in terms of building up the research that we're doing right now to on on block caving. We have this um, grouping now of of like-minded, let's say, professors who are working on these problems that we uh, run under a program called the International Caving Research Network. Caving is the, the mining method to 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 get this one percent, two percent copper and mine it in a large enough volumes in an underground setting. They use a method called caving um, uh, mining method. And so we've, we've developed this international, uh, caving research network, um, which has really been good because it, 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 it we, we have this interest from industry, these major mining companies that come in, we're working on world-class problems, world-class data sets. That's also the thing that I've really benefited from is my partnerships with industry. It isn't just a matter of, Oh, they're giving me research money and I can hire students and equipment and we can do this work. Um, we have great research facilities here at UBC, but we don't have our own mine. We don't operate a mine. We don't have the problems that that they're dealing with. And we've had these partnerships where we're working with these different mines. Sometimes it's a, a long way to travel. You know, we've worked with mines in South Africa, in Australia, in Indonesia. Um, but we're working with like mines that are are like the largest in the world with unique problems and gaining very unique access to world-class data. So to all the companies that I, I've, I've partnered with, whether it's been Rio Tinto, um, uh, PT Freeport Indonesia, Freeport McMoran, um, uh, Newcrest, all of them have been relationships where a uh, tech in our own backyard, shouldn't forget tech, um, where we've been able to partner with these companies and and approach problems that they're dealing with, forward thinking, you know, we're not putting out their fires that they have today. They have their consultants, their consultants and their service providers, but being, you know, for their tactical decision-making, but for the strategic stuff, like these are something that they can see already the problems are coming. We've developed some really good research relationships with them. And so I'm very thankful um, to a lot of the people because not only do I get to work with brilliant people who who are inspiring, um, they come from different aspects. There's the people I've worked with from academia who who I find absolutely brilliant. I feel humble around because... I'm a, I'm a rock engineer. I don't know math as well as these guys. They, they're, they're amazing that when they can start talking about some of these things um, and even more amazing, if some of it seeps in and I can actually understand it, I'm thinking, Oh boy, you, you're, you you don't understand your level of brilliance. If I can understand a little bit of that. Um, and then the people similar who are, are really gifted and talented and, and brilliant out in industry, who've been living and working with these problems for, for, for years, if not decades, um, and how that's come to, to help, also motivate and inspire the research we're doing and, and 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 it's the students right the students then get to work with these companies creates job opportunities for them but it puts meaning into their research right they're they're giving this data set and they understand the problem that that these these minds are struggling to make decisions um that they have to be extremely cautious because people's lives uh, are involved here uh, in terms of of, of the workers in the mines. And then, and the, and the students get exposed to that, the, you know, real engineering problems that prepares them for when they do go out and work. Uh, uh, that they can take the skill sets that they they have in the university, and they can already put them immediately into the context of of what's really needed in terms of solving problems in the real world.
0: You've touched on this uh, throughout the interview, um, but I'm curious uh, if you can help me understand where geological engineering is going in the future. Um, I find that these days the world is changing so quickly that the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time they retire. So uh, what advice or what change do you see coming to geological engineering? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and not get blindsided?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you know, talking about again where the demand is going to be in terms of of strategic minerals, especially copper, and and the need for for actually more mines. Um, you know, the one thing we saw during the you know re- the last recession, let's say, and, and and the pandemic and stuff like that was that. Uh, the demand for geological engineering in terms of of, of the job opportunities for our students didn't decrease. It it actually stayed the same, if not increased, because mines throughout that time were were still needing to operate. And so I I look into the future um, and and talking about this need for more mines. And and I think Vancouver is such a key international center for um, uh, engineering consulting services provided to the mining industry, that that demand is going to be there and it's going to, it's actually going to grow. And we already see that, that we can't get enough that there are more jobs than we have students that we graduate. You know, there's also other um, aspects that were are very traditional in terms of where the jobs are for geological engineers. It's not just mining. There's there's civil infrastructure, building of dams, building of highways, um, natural hazards and, and uh, you know, protection of communities. Um, of course, protection of the environment related to these projects. So I think a lot of the traditional jobs are still going to be there. There's still going to be high demand. No, we also have seen some, some change that's actually adds to the demand. You know, I had a PhD student who went off and formed his own engineering consulting company and where he, his company grew to be quite successful to the point that he was able to sell it to a larger uh, consulting company and do quite well by that was he was um, doing the foundations for wind turbines on uh, wind farms. You know, you can look at a a turbine, you can see the big rotating blades. Those things are top heavy. They want to tip over. And so it takes a lot to, to properly design their foundations and, and understand the geology, the strength of those materials, and how, you know, it, you're going to integrate this anchoring system to basically hold these things that are that have these wind pressures being put on from blowing over, or tipping over. So he did quite well doing what's called micropiles, but basically designing the foundations to, to turbines on these wind farm projects in the US that were all of a sudden coming online. So, so you have new things that are coming that, that you um, uh, have to adapt to. But where I think also some of the changes are going to come is on the around natural hazards. So natural hazards are something that um, in BC, but really in large, most parts of North America, it's sort of dealt with at the local government, uh, regional level. Um, and, you know, small communities that were, are, are, are the ones, at least in our mountains, that are, are impacted by like landslides and debris flows. They don't really have a lot of resources. They have some resources. So there's there's, there's work there. There's projects. It was something that certainly a lot of our, our graduates were always interested in. And it's where a lot of UBC's research expertise, like people like Professor Scott McDougall, you know, are international landslide experts. Um, and so UBC is is actually considered one of the leading international sort of thought centers in terms of research with landslides and natural hazards. But there wasn't necessarily a lot of jobs. There were some, but not a lot because there's not a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of money being put in by government towards that. So if I'm saying where can things change as we look at climate change and we look at extreme weather events and we look at what happened last year in terms of flooding and landsliding, um, that might be something where we have to rethink how we um, manage and engineer around those hazards and not rely on small municipal governments that can't afford it to to carry that that weight. Um, if government steps in, and, and certainly industry does, because industry is trying to protect their assets um, and and their needs, I think there's going to be a huge growth I- around natural hazards. Uh, so that's, I think, something that in geological engineering we'll, we'll see uh, quite a bit of growth. But to again, just to be honest, it, it is um, the BC government projections in terms of, you know, they look at all different professions and where there's... You know demand and relative to supply and geological engineering for some time has always been listed as a a critical area in terms of of trying to meet the demand and that's a demand that's just going to continue growing.
0: Um, Well not great that we uh, will need more disaster protection but uh, great that our graduates will have jobs.
1: (laughs) The challenge right now is actually attracting students into um, fields like geological mining engineering. So I think what we used to face was um, especially the mining uh, mining engineering would always, the department here would always face this, right? The ups and downs. When the industry is going good and there's lots of jobs, a lot of students are attracted in. When the industry is down, not as many jobs, not as many students go there. So you can almost walk down the hallway of, of student class photos and see big class, small class, big class, small class that sort of reflect um, the, the economy. What's changed most recently though is that there's been increasing demand but it hasn't been met with increasing number of students being attracted into, um, into these, these type of programs. Um, and so part of it, I think, is is um, you know, there there certainly is a draw towards things like computer engineering. Everyone wants to be the next Google. And um and part of it is also maybe just the um perception that mining engineering by its name, geological engineering by Association of, of that's where a lot of the the demand is for our students and, and where the jobs are. Um, that the mining industry is is dirty, and 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 um, as was said at the beginning when I was talking about the UBC, UBC climate emergency task force, where they think it's counter to to you know climate concerns. Um, I think one of the communication pieces that is needed is um, or engagement with students, especially um, at, at the campus wide level is some kind of broader discussion, but actually these are programs are at the forefront of, uh, on the front lines of these challenges. Um, you know, yes, we need the science to study, to show that the, how the climate is changing, but we need the engineers who, who are going to come up with the solutions, um, that are needed to actually address the problem. And, and that's, Where my call would be to to first year engineering students who are saying what type of engineering would I need to you know should I go into, I'd say you know geological engineering and and mining engineering these are 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 programs where you can really have an impact uh, in your career a positive impact especially around climate change and uh, where there's fantastic jobs there's a demand um, and right right now the industry's challenge is how to attract more people in uh, to meet you know. this this need to invest $100 billion in new mines to open, you know, whatever it's going to be, 100 new mines. And, And it's not an easy task because we've done all the easy stuff. It's not opening up 100 easy mines like we did in the past. It's opening up 100 really hard, challenging mines and doing so in a way that minimizes its impact on the environment, that does so in a way that can ensure the safety of the people who work there or what what we've been doing and working with a lot of is actually moving to automation instead of putting workers in harm's way. We put machine and equipment in, in harm's way, but that still isn't a solution to the problem. You know, uh, an, uh, an equipment gets buried. You have to you have to get it out, and 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 it stalls the production. It stalls that drive of of trying to get that one or two percent copper um, out of out of the rock that's going to be needed if if we want to have renewable energy. If we want to have electric cars, none of this is going to happen without without those metals. Um, and that's, that to me is where I, the, the real challenges, um, for us is, is not, are there, you know, are there jobs out there for graduates and, and how will those jobs change? It's just the change is happening. It's, it's just getting people who, who see this as being, uh, a, a pathway where they can help, um, solve critical existential problems. Um, and, 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 and there's certainly going to be the jobs for them.
0: It's a lucrative, exciting, and responsible career.
1: It is, yeah. And it's, it's just getting that message out there. And we've been talking about that on campus and especially when, you, when, you know, you see sometimes the student perceptions that are all well-intentioned, but um, woefully disconnected from, you know, a pragmatic reality of, of, of saying, yes, there is a problem. And like any problem, we just can't talk about the problem. We have to talk about solutions. And we have to talk about actionable solutions, realistic solutions. And they can come in different levels, right? There are definitely solutions where we say we should have this in the future um, and we should be working towards getting there. But we need to do something now um, and doing something that doesn't exist um, or doing something that just isn't going to work now isn't the solution. It's it's taking what we do know, what we can get working, and doing it uh, as we transition to to, and and do the R&D that's needed to get us to these other ideas of, of, you know, um you know alternative energy that aren't just about renewables i know we're talking about that but um you know going into things like um cold fusion and 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 so forth that that you know all these other things that that are are out there as 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 being talked about in theory um uh but are 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 absolutely not here yet
0: <laughs> Use the keyword there. Transition. It's not a flip of the light switch where we go from a petroleum-based economy one day to an electricity-based economy the next. It's a, it's a, a
1: process. Yeah, and 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 so with that process, there's certainly things we can do that help make the change and and help encourage, you know, what do you want to call it? The free market capitalism, whatever you want, that help encourage it to make that transition. Um, but it it has to be done with with a you know an understanding of the big picture and the complexity of these systems um to actually do something that's that's positive and 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 I always keep coming back to a pragmatic it's it's there's a reality that we have to deal with
0: um now for my final question uh, i want you to look to the long term for yourself uh, as you mentioned your mid career what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone uh
1: i think um you know i i, I think we we're saying this offline um you know the, the geological engineering program here at UBC is is 100 years old a lot of people probably wouldn't know that it, you know it's um uh, it, it it's it's geological engineering although you find it in in almost every country and in, in, in um today, it started here at UBC a hundred years ago. Um, so there's a little bit of source of pride in that. And, and I think we have one of the, we have the oldest and we have certainly one of the largest programs, although we always talked about having the largest program and now with China, they just open up a new program and it's already 10 times bigger than everything else because of the population difference. There, but, but you know, we had one of the programs we certainly have one of the best known programs. So I think I find myself as just being one point in history of, of the last hundred years of a lot of people who helped build up this program. And I've contributed it together with my, my, my colleagues in geological engineering who, you know, are are with me now. And I hope that when we, each of us are retiring stuff like that, that there's just a a continued transition, um, of improvement. And, um, and, and so what do I, what I like to see, I like to see just that, that, um, the, Spirit that we've gone into this in terms of recognizing what the challenges are on in terms of, of you know, making our, our 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 communities and our environment um, cleaner, safer, like making our, our, our communities safer, our our climate cleaner, um, all the things that, that the positive actions we're doing that that there's a continuation of that, and that 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 the people who come in that are coming in, you know, behind us are, are, are just continuing that. So I, I don't really need any legacy. I don't think I, I need to have anything, um, certainly to go with me into my retirement other than to see that looking back, you know, we made a positive contribution and that that contribution continues just as, as, you know, the contribution I've made in the last 15, 20 years is built on, you know, the, the geological engineering faculty before me and before them, and that will come after me and after them. Um, so I, I, I think this is a, a fantastic program. It has a, a fantastic reputation internationally. Uh, it's great to be sometimes just working on projects on the other side of the planet and and running into an alumni or running into people who just say, "Oh, you're from UBC," and and, and say all these great things about people that they've they've worked with or ran into over the years. Uh, I like to see a lot of that continue because, um, yes, it's a great career. It's a rewarding career. But I I I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that it's it's front and center it's there on the front lines of of, of the, the the challenges that that uh the world is facing today uh in terms of of com- you know helping bring in the solutions that are needed
0: you want to have successfully carried the torch
1: it just you know it's it's sort of like I'm glad I didn't break it and and um you know and I just hope to leave it in in good shape for for whoever comes in, in you know and assumes my professorship I guess and when I leave and and, and continues that going forward. I you know I, I look at other universities and, and there's just something special at UBC um in terms of, of the people that have been hired here that are working here that are are you know international rock stars, you know, and um and the fantastic stuff they've done. But Doing so in an environment where they're working and solving problems in their own backyard. Look at BC. Look at our our, our you know the North Shore cross of the North Shore Mountains, and, and we have we're living in this fantastic laboratory um, uh, that we have the privilege to 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 work and play in. Um, but you know, sea to sky is is very much what we're, we're we're facing in terms of where the challenges are. You know changes in terms of the land use the changes in terms of what it means in terms of the ocean changes in terms of what it means in terms of the atmosphere all that is captured here in this, this this department so people are doing top science but they're they're also doing so in an environment where they can directly apply what they're doing for the benefit of of you know the the community around us so we're working globally but we're doing so also solving problems locally and and i think that's you know one of the things that i i i have always sort of uh, I find attractive at, at UBC and draws me here is, is is you know we we work internationally yes and and, and and we have you know these these profiles where we get to travel to to australia we get to travel to indonesia but we're doing so with the mindset of of solving the problems that that are that are, we're going to be facing the next 20 30 40 50 years here in, in bc well well after i'm gone so what you know that's part of the legacy right the knowledge base that we're building up here um, we're just starting to see the transition here in BC. We start talking about activity in the Northwest corner of the province, uh, the golden triangle. We're seeing some of the older, uh, large mines. Um, a few of them that have gone underground, like new Afton Mine in, in, in Kamloops, but there'll be others like Highland Valley, uh, the red Chris mine. Uh, there's a number of these mines. And so we're just there at the beginning helping them, but this is just going to grow in time. And so I guess that's also part of the legacy is just seeing other younger researchers come in and invest their, their talents towards these type of problems.
0: Uh, Eric, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed? Anything you want to add before I let you go? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I've been sort of rambling off for quite a time here. I- no, no worries.
0: Uh, Eric, thanks for sharing your passion, um, your conviction, and uh, your perspective as well. Um, it's really refreshing.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca/slash learn/slash podcast or listen on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.